Hi, I'm Kathy Borton. I'm an attorney at the law firm of Miller, Miller & Camby in Rockville, Maryland. doesn't make sense to put 10 or 20 small cells through the same process that you would put a macro tower through. I'm Katherine Speglia, and this is Well Technically, the tech podcast where women do the explaining. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Unlike most of my guests, your background isn't in technology necessarily. You're actually a lawyer. And for many years, you've worked on the legal side of the wireless industry, first in in in-building and now in site acquisition and real estate. This gives you a really unique and valuable perspective on the telecom industry that I don't often get to hear, so I'm really looking forward to asking you some questions about that. But first, what is an example of a time in which being a woman has empowered you? You know, that's a question that sometimes when women get together and talk about things like this, I find odd in a way because you think to yourself, it's 2021, I'm empowered. Why is it that I'm empowered as a woman? And why does that figure into it? But I will say that I think there are a few things that that do contribute to that feeling of late. What I have found is something that has filled a hole that's been lacking in my career. I've really not had any female mentors in my entire legal career. And really, I was in advertising and marketing before I went to law school, and I didn't encounter many women-centric women as mentors in that field, Uh, my mentors in that field were men. And so what I have found recently, I joined a group called Crew, it's Commercial Real Estate Women, it's an international organization. And I joined the Suburban Maryland group because it's a slightly smaller group and I felt like it was a way that I could really get entrenched very early on. And I'm now actually on the board of directors. And what I do find empowering as a woman is when I'm on a networking event and really during the pandemic, it's been quite fascinating because when you're doing this on Zoom, everybody is looking at you right then. No one's working the room. They're not looking above your head to see who's there. So you immediately get this this connection. And I have gotten real leads from that where I'll be on a Zoom and I meet somebody and I go into the chat and I'm very proud of myself that I figured out how to do an individual chat. Um, my, my 21 and 22 year olds would be mortified to hear me say that. But, you know, I'll go in and chat and say, listen, we should talk. And then that person follows up and then I get a new client. And to me, that's a very female centric organization. We do have men, but, but it's commercial real estate women. And that is empowering to me as a woman that I was able to be in an event where I just directly got clients. I think another part of what empowers me is just my own personal upbringing and just sort of the idea that go be confident, you can do it. And there have been times in my advertising career and my legal career where I've walked into a room just having that sense that I'm going to be underestimated. And I love just, bam, 
proven them wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's always a fun feeling. I like how timely your answer was, kind of bringing the effects of COVID into that and finding new ways to feel empowered. I also think it's cool that, you know, the point of this podcast is, you know, when I ask the question, I guess what I'm asking is times in tech you felt empowered. And the whole point was women's voices aren't heard enough at technology, but you were actually talking about completely different fields. Your career trajectory, as we thoroughly discussed, is a bit different from most of the women I interview on the podcast. So I wanted to make sure I asked you how you got into wireless and found yourself on a tech podcast. Sure. So also, I wanted to to clarify a little bit. Um, I didn't start, I actually didn't start in the DAS world. I actually started more on the land use and zoning side for macro towers. So I was an associate at this firm. And as I said, you know, we had all these, it was very boutique with experts in different things. And so this gentleman who what, had this background and this expertise in land use and zoning was approached by a carrier to do, I think, one lease kind of a thing. And and then it was, hey, we, we want to put up a tower and we're going to need to go through zoning. Now, keep in mind, this was in 1995, 96. So relatively still early. I mean, at, at this stage, I don't think I wasn't walking around with a cell phone in my hand all the time. You know, so this was still relatively early days in many respects. And then there was another partner in the firm who sort of started taking over that work. The one lease and the one special exception kind of became more and more and more. And then, so, so he took it on. He came to me and said, can you help me? I've got an administrative appeal to the grant of the special exception. And I helped him with that. We worked great together. And so I just continued to do all that work with him. Trust me when I tell you, I did not go to law school thinking, oh, I'm going to come out and do leasing and land use and zoning for wireless. Like, wasn't they don't teach that. It wasn't on the, on the table at all. So I fell into it there. Um, when I left there, I actually left to become an in-house city attorney for the city of Gaithersburg, which had been a client of this firm. And they decided they wanted to bring somebody in-house. So when I was there, probably 90% of that job was planning. And so there was a lot of land use and zoning involved and there would be carriers who would come through to, to some extent, more through the Board of Appeals, but, but somewhat I would be involved with that. But while, before I left to go to the city, see if you can follow this, the partner that I had been working with, he left the firm. So he was just doing this work and I continued to be of counsel to him and continued to help him. I went to the city, he was my, my, my guy. So I was an attorney by myself, which is typically not a great scenario. It's always good to have somebody to bounce things off of. And he was that person for me. And one day we, we had a conversation and he had gotten so, so, so busy. And he, he reached out and he said, you and I have always worked well on this stuff together. I can't think of anybody else that knows what you know. Please, 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 you know, come and join me. So we were back together and we did that work for 11 years, just the two of us, one carrier. Um, and, and that took me everywhere from doing rooftops, uh, macro towers, 
whether it was getting the zoning and the entitlements to do it, to subleasing to other carriers on our on our towers, going on other towers, um, working with infrastructure companies to do sort of build to suit. So we'd work with the infrastructure company to get the tower going for our client, the carrier. And then I did get very involved in the DAS, which started out as something really small and became much larger. And the cool thing about it was that I wound up learning about things related to government high security facilities, parts of NIH that I never knew even existed, shopping malls, grocery stores. I learned about the JHO compliance. I think that's what it's called in hospitals hotels and how hotels are very odd ownership and management structure. So by, by doing that DAS work, I, I learned so much about so many different and, you know, different sectors of real estate, really. And that, that was sort of the, of how I got into wireless, how I stayed in it. I also had the opportunity during that past 11 years to work on legislation. So when small cells were sort of starting to come to the forefront, we went to Montgomery County, we, they were redoing their zoning ordinance and we jumped in for that opportunity and said, hey, you need to address this because the current zoning ordinance provisions don't. We got that passed. And then we went to the city of Gaithersburg, we got legislation passed there. And then things started to change some more and so, I actually had to get registered as a lobbyist because I was working with staff for the county council for Montgomery County, Maryland. And then we reached a point where the actual lobbyists really needed to get involved because it was becoming much more of a legislative affairs, government affairs, high level issue because of a lot of things been going on at the FCC. So, um, but it, it's taken me into a lot of different arenas. So it's been pretty cool. Yeah, that certainly proves the pervasiveness of connectivity that it took you into so many different fields yes. and industries. From a legal perspective, what are some of the biggest challenges that the wireless industry faces when it comes to 5G? I know you started to talk about small cells a little bit. The biggest challenges right now one is definitely that there's an inconsistency across jurisdictions. We don't have a consistent set of zoning regulations that will apply across the board. What we do have are more and more FCC sort of mandates that the jurisdictions are getting frustrated with and pushing back more and more. So one of the things that I think is definitely a challenge is getting the zoning process to meet what the technology is. So for a long time, it was just about allowing larger sized antennas without having to go through additional processes. Then it became allowing smaller sized antennas. That, that's where we sort of started out with the small cells. But now we're in a situation where and I'm sure that your readers and listeners know when you're talking about 5G and small cells, because the signal doesn't go as far, you really need to have these sites 
not very far away and you need a lot of them to link up. It doesn't make sense to put a process of 10 or 20 individual small cells that, that are gonna be connected through the same process that you would put a macro tower through because you don't have the same implications, the same ramifications, the, um, the setbacks aren't the same, the level of environmental impact I don't think is the same. And so, but that's what's happening. And, and so you wind up, you get these applications for small cells and they don't fit what's there for the, the macro sites and the, for example, Sean and I were talking, for example, the, the application fee, it's maybe in where, we, where we're located, $15,000 to apply to put up a macro tower. It doesn't make any sense to apply to, to charge $15,000 for a small cell installation. So what they need to do is what we usually call batching. So maybe it's going to be $15,000, but you're going to process 20 applications for 20 of these sites to link up. And it doesn't allow for that. What it says right now is you want to put up a small cell, you have to go through this process in, in some places. Some places are far ahead of the game. So I think that's definitely a challenge. I think the pushback the FCC wanting to kind of dig in more on shot clocks, fees that can be charged, the RF emissions, they're not going to back off of that. And, and the municipalities getting very frustrated with that. I also, I don't know if you're familiar with, it's called Section 6409 of the Tax Relief Act. And it was passed many, many years ago, but there have been some updates to it. And recently, and the, the purpose of that is basically to allow expansions without, again, having to go back through a local zoning process. So you can extend the height of the tower by a certain percentage without having to go back. But there's also recently been an expansion of what 6409 allows to allow, I think it's 30% um, larger expansion of the ground compound without that being considered excavation so that you could, can, you could, don't have to go back again. And that's again, something that's a challenge. You know, you had the FCC saying this, but you did have members of the FCC dissenting saying that really takes us far beyond where we want to be. And I saw Commissioner Rosenworcel, she just had a great comment about it. And she was saying that, you know, we really, we need a way forward that's going to speed everything up, but we need to work with the jurisdictions and just telling the jurisdictions what they have to do and taking away their authority at the local level is not the way to go about doing it. So there's this real push and pull between wanting that local authority when you can actually exercise that local authority and when you can't. So I think that that continues to be a challenge. And then I think that leads to a problem where what I'm hearing is that the carriers, the infrastructure companies are not going to want to invest money in jurisdictions where they're not getting that accommodation. And that puts the cities and the citizens at a disadvantage. That was really great. Uh, you brought up a lot of 
challenges that I've obviously heard some of those before, but not as in depth, I don't think, because the people I'm hearing them from are usually the carriers or the infrastructure guys, not necessarily the people who are living the legal aspect of it. And I think that's very illuminating to me and hopefully to my listeners. So what are the different levels of approval that carriers need to obtain in order to get this infrastructure where they want it? There are definitely several. It sounds going in like, well, we just have to get a special exception or conditional use. But within that process, there are so many levels before and after. So for example, you always have to reach out to the community. So typically you're required to have a a community meeting. And at the community meeting, you would bring with you potentially the the arche- the um, the engine the RF engineer. You would have with you the whatever engineer was involved in actually designing the tower, the structural engineer, and the site acquisition person and your and yourself representing the carrier or the infrastructure company and and you explain to the community what it is that you're trying to do and answer questions those meetings range from people just pummeling you opposing you telling you how horrible you are all while filming the meeting on their cell phones from all the way ranging from, I had somebody once at a meeting, she said, can you put one of these on my farm? And I said, I'm taking it with me everywhere I go from now on. It was awesome. Um, so it really runs a gambit. Um, then you've got the planners at the local jurisdiction. And so there's a pre-planning meeting where, and, and that ranges. Some jurisdictions, your pre-planning meeting is essentially having your entire application ready to go. Whereas others, it's not quite as in depth. You have the opportunity to go in, talk about, oh, the planners might say, you know what, in this area, we've got to see some camouflaging or we need you to consider this or things like that. So you get the opportunity to work with the planners. Then you've got the decision-making body. So it's either going to be a board of appeals or a hearing examiner or something along those lines. That again, by county, even locally here, we I'm in a county where it's basically a trial. It is evidence, it's direct examination, it's cross-examination, it's the rules of evidence to some extent. So it's very, very full-blown. Neighboring county that I've done these in, it's basically, do you have any questions? Thank you very much. And you sit down. So it's it's really a whole range of what you're going to encounter at that decision-making body. Then you get the decision and there's the courts because either party, well, it's actually, let me back up. Sometimes you have another level locally where you have to go to get that decision looked at again, if you're not happy with it. Depending on what happens there, then you're in the courts and you either party can be appealing to the court. And in Maryland, where I'm located, we have a first right of appeal to the circuit court. Then we have a right of appeal to the court of special appeals. And then the court of appeals is not by right. It's a petition 
of certiorari. So the, the court decides whether or not to take it. So that's all the local aspect. And then layered onto that, you've got the federal level also involved because again, they are imposing things like the shot clock and the fees that can be charged and what's an expansion, what's not an expansion. So all of that, the federal level is not necessarily involved in an individual application, but parts of requirements are, they're generated by those federal policies or those federal laws. So basically that entire local and federal input into that process, that's really for macro towers. And it also includes things like historic preservation, something called SHPO, where you have to do sort of an inventory of are there historic registered sites in the area, are the views affected, things like that. There's also NEPA, environmental regulations that have to be addressed, airport regulations that have to be addressed. So those are all things that figure in, but again, that's all based on macro sites, traditional macro sites. So when we're looking at small cells, again, that all, it doesn't really make sense to put the small cell use through that process. And what we're hoping is that eventually we'll get to the point where small cells will really just be a building permit process. So the legislation will basically say, if you meet these requirements, then you have the ability to go ahead and go to building permit without having to go through this very protracted, multi-level community planning, decision-making, appeals, and all of that. So that that's it's really sort of again that that push and pull of we we want to make sure that we can get these small cells built in batches more quickly without having to go through that full process. Yeah, oof. And in the meantime, that is quite a process that carriers have to undergo. So what advice do you have for them and others in the wireless industry? as our networks continue to advance and transform and expand? The number one thing carriers and infrastructure companies can do is cooperate and work with the jurisdictions. I think it is so important and it's so frustrating when, especially when we're talking about some of these trends that we're seeing in the industry and the fact that a lot of what the, the carriers and the infrastructure companies are required to do doesn't really fit. So any way that they can work with the, the jurisdictions, even when we're talking about macros, I've had situations where a community meeting for whatever reason wasn't required, but we know that jurisdiction wants us to do it. And it's always better to be able to say that you did it and to be able to represent to the approving body, look, we went to the community, we've been working with them. So you work with the government side of the jurisdiction, work with the community, be a friend to the community, basically. Kathy, thank you so much for being here. This was really valuable. Oh, I'm glad. It's great. I love talking about it. So I'm glad that it could be informative. Well, Technically is an Arden Media production. 
For advertising inquiries, contact Danny Miller at dmiller at artandmedia.com. Today's show was produced and edited by me, Catherine Speglia. 